Hey guys, welcome to episode 86 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we all hope you're doing really well and you're enjoying the beginning of the fall season. Well, if it is fall for you, because in some parts of the world it's not. That's very true. And the leaves are just starting to turn here, so we're super excited. Um, in the northeast where we live, especially in the town we moved to, there's a lot of woods and mountains and it just looks so beautiful in the fall so it does the only drawback though maple trees with the helicopter leaves or i should say helicopter seeds hate them yeah we have a huge maple tree in the front of our house which is beautiful provides shade you know cute squirrels everywhere but we have so many helicopter little stupid things inside of our house it's all we do is sweep them up (laughs) the moment you step into our house that's what's happening it's actually like You'd be bringing them into the house every time we walk in. So that's not cool. But the rest of everything else and the everything else is great. scenery is beautiful. <laughs> so while we're on the topic of fall, we just want to remind you to send us your scary stories for our listener stories episode that we do at the end of every October. So we already received a few submissions and I've starred them in my inbox and I can't wait to read them. And I think that I've said this before, but what I do is I kind of like let them collect in my inbox and then I pick one night in October to like just sit in the dark with a glass of wine and just like freak myself out. So if you sent a submission, I am going to read it and I respond to every single person who sends a submission. I'm just waiting for my like creepy night first. Yeah. You know, she has to set the mood. She has to get the wine. She has to get the pumpkin candle. Yes. She needs to do all the preparations that, you know, come with that. But yes, she does do that. So it's, it's like my funny. favorite. It's like such a nice tradition that yes. has been started. So if you have a story involving supernatural or something terrifying that happened to you, or even if you just have like a connection with a true crime case, please send us an email at truecrimecouple at gmail.com. And if we use your story, we will send you an Amazon gift card for your contribution. And even if it passes like the October episode and you still have a story and you're kind of like listening to this later on, please still send a submission because I star it and kind of just save it for the following October. We've done that before. And we have a few from um, like a year ago that we're using in this episode. So, yeah, I mean, they can never go to waste. I mean, your stories are always... Uh, there's no, I should say, there's no expiration date on your story. So no. we'll always use them. And we also want to remind you to rate and review us on iTunes or whichever podcast platform you listen to us on. It really helps us with the ratings and we would love a little bit more exposure. So even though we've been around for like over three years, <laughs> our goal is to get on new and noteworthy. <laughs> I actually in my notes wrote LOL after that because it's... <laughs> such a joke but like we really do want to like start getting a little bit more noticed um it's always nice to have the exposure and the way that it works with like these reviews it's so crazy that it just has such like a bearing over um where you like are in the charts and if people like recognize you so like sending a review to us would be really super helpful preferably five stars i'm going to just make that a caveat well i should say or i really should say just if you like us, just leave the review. If you don't like us, I mean, don't. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's kind of, uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's just a big waste of time yeah. and energy. So um, at the end of this episode, like always, we always want to say a big thank you and name all of our new contributors to our Patreon page. 
We were redoing our office, so we were delayed in Patreon episodes, but one is dropping the same time as this episode, which would be on Sunday the 28th, and after that, we'll be dropping a second Patreon episode on the 30th of September. And our big news for our Patreons is that we're going to start recording monthly videos on true crime current events starting in October. So for those of you that are contributing $10 and above, we want to show our gratitude for your support. So currently at $1 to $2 a month, you get one bonus episode. And at $5 or more, you get two and a sticker. So now at $10 and above, you'll get a video a month. So we're just excited to, you know, because we want to give rewards to people for for donating to us because it's so nice of them. And I know how much that really does mean. So we want to give them everything we can. Yeah, I mean, we know that it's a big deal, you know, you know, supporting us. And we want everyone to know that we also think it's a big deal. Right. Because you support our show, you, all of you guys, whether you're on Patreon or just listening to us. Any bit helps. Everything that all you guys do always helps. So we're very appreciative. Yes, I completely agree. So if you want to be a part of our Patreon family, you can do that by hopping over to patreon.com slash true crime couple. And we appreciate donations at every level. Is that that's probably it for the housekeeping, right? Yeah, that is. <laughs> right. You're basically telling me to like shut up and <laughs> no, get going. never, never. <laughs> all right. So I promise. This episode is not going to be as disturbing as our last episode, which I still shudder every time I think about. But like, I'll be like driving to work and I'll be like, ooh, episode 85. That was rough. Like, Pretty brutal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, you will be fired up after this one as well. We're going to cover for you the tragic murder of college basketball star Patrick Dennehy and the controversy surrounding the Baylor University NCAA scandal. In this case, you will find yourself hopeful for the future of this bright young man, confused by the entire story, furious regarding the actions of Baylor University, and just heartbroken that our justice system made this situation all the more messed up. So it was the summer of 2003 when Patrick Dennehy was reported missing. At first, his disappearance started as a whisper in the locker rooms at Baylor University. But in a few short months, it would turn into a blaring alarm in the form of an FBI investigation and an investigation into the university itself. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. In the 11 years before David Bliss was hired as the head coach of Baylor University basketball, the program had never had a winning season. But this did not worry Bliss. It actually excited him. In his 25 years as a coach, he had gained the reputation for turning losing programs into winning ones. He prided himself as being a proud Christian man, a Baptist, actually. And that is why Baylor University, a Baptist school, was perfect for him. He said that he wished to end his career at a Christian university, so he jumped at the chance to take the position. Many on campus were hopeful that the year 2003 was going to be the year that basketball made a comeback on campus. 
Because Baylor University is really known most for its football program, I would say. Yeah. Around I, the early 2000s. Yeah, for sure. Bliss wasted no time recruiting some of the best players that he could find at smaller colleges. He gave these talented young men the opportunity to play ball for Baylor and get an education there. This was very appealing. These boys were all talented, but their lower income upbringings only allowed their skills to take them so far when it came to recruitment opportunities. Bliss's offer is what they had been waiting for. One of those men had been Patrick Dennehy, or Pat, as all of his friends called him. Pat was very skilled. He was agile on the court and a great ball handler. And that's pretty rare for someone as tall as him. He stood at six foot nine, and he didn't have to overcome an awkwardness on the court um, that a lot of kind of boys develop because being that tall is so awkward and you grow so fast. So it's kind of like, you know. Yeah. And also, like, he looked like a man. I mean, like, he is a man. Oh, he was Jack. But like, I guess what I'm trying was... to say is, like, you know, for the for his age and for yeah. being in college, he looked like a 35-year-old man, I feel like. Yeah, he, you know, he was had... Big. Like, he was, like, super muscular, and he was so tall, and he was just, like, ready for the NBA. Yeah, oh, totally. So it was all natural for him. And Pat's stepfather said that that's just the way Pat was. He was a natural at everything. He said the first time Patrick picked up a basketball, he was 13 years old. And he fell in love with the game and played every day until it became second nature for him. Pat grew up in Santa Clara, California and eventually went to the University of New Mexico. He was able to play basketball, but there was no scholarship. And this was something that was weighing financially on his mother and stepfather. But they were confident that Pat would eventually get recognized, and that it was just a matter of time before he was on the fast track to the NBA. And this is when Bliss approached Pat and offered him a full scholarship to Baylor University. He could go to an academically stellar school for free. And Bliss even threw in a beautiful student housing apartment with other teammates and a brand new Chevy Tahoe. I mean, what 20-year-old would ever pass up on that? I mean, none of them, especially with the talent that Pat had. I mean, like, this is a dream for him to go to a school like this. It's a little bit more, you know, I guess I could equate it to both colleges that he went to and then was going to with Baylor, it's like buying a Honda to a Mercedes. You know, it's just like the recognition of that school compared to New Mexico. And nothing against New Mexico, but right, you know, it's just a big jump. Because Baylor is a, isn't part of Big 12, is that? You know, I always forget because, you know, between basketball and football, they're different. Oh, okay. I can't remember. I think I remember them saying that it was Big 12. But, it sounds about right. But it's definitely like the competition that he's going to be facing are people that are going to be a little bit more talented. And if his skills are being shown on the court against people who are really good competition, then obviously there's going to be more eyes on him. Totally. Oh, yeah. So to those who were closest to Pat, his parents, sister, and childhood friend said that he was an amazing young man. He was loyal and protective of the ones he loved, but he was also really friendly to everyone. He had a genuine heart and was very funny. He knew he was going to the NBA, and when he got his first check, he said he was going to buy his mother a house. They also said that Pat was really excited about Baylor. Bliss promised him the world, and he was happy to claim it. 
But until then, Baylor was going to foot the bill for him. And his sister recalled that Pat was excited. For the first time, he didn't have to worry about getting evicted, his car breaking down, or not being able to pay tuition. He was going to live the life that his talents could definitely afford him. And by the way, um, just to confirm, you know, it is the Big 12. So you work around. Wow. Um, also, what you said also makes sense uh, is that if you're in the Big 12, I mean, you are going up against some big talent. I mean, you have to think you have Baylor University, Iowa State, University of Kansas. These are, you know, these are great basketball yeah. schools. You have Kansas State, University of Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, and TCU, which stands for Texas Christian University, if you didn't know. So those are like really big schools, actually. Like, big. Yeah, so definitely so scouts yeah. in the NBA are like looking 100%. at that. 100%. But what was about to go down at Baylor is going to be beyond shocking. Now, I know this happened 17 years ago, but I, as a true crime maniac, and John, obviously, as a big sports guy, has really heard very little about this Baylor scandal. And it's pretty massive because not most NCAA scandals really have a murder involved in it. Oh, no. So it is pretty shocking how quiet this has been kept. So we actually found out about this case and um, a lot of information that we're going to be giving to you while we are um, going through this podcast is going to be through a documentary that was done on Showtime. And that documentary is called Disgrace. So you can watch it if you have a Showtime subscription, but also I know it's available on Amazon Prime. But I think I saw that it was only available on Prime until like September 30th. So if you don't want to pay for it, I would get on there and watch it. It's truly incredible. And the reason why we include so much information from the documentary is because for the first time, so many people involved with this crime and with this scandal are actually going to give interviews for the for the documentary. And it's truly, the way it's done, it's beautifully covered. It's respectful to the victim and victims, because I feel like there's more than one victim in this case. And it's like jaw-dropping. Yeah, it's an eye-opening. And the worst part is, even at the end of that and our podcast today, I think you're still going to have a lot of questions because a lot of things will not be answered, unfortunately. No. So it's pretty cool. Right. And it seems like there's going to be a lot of um, updates this coming year. So it's 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 nice to be well-versed on this case, knowing that um, there are some events coming up in 2021. So we'll get to that at the end of the podcast. But, and just as the documentary is going to claim, the only thing regarding the case that has really stuck with people is people vaguely remembering an NCAA violation by the college. But everyone always fails to remember that one life, and by the end of this podcast, I think you'll most likely think more than one life, was stolen and the promise of a bright future completely destroyed. So if you live in the United States, it would be of no shock if I said to you that college sports in Texas are a big deal. Hell, high school sports are a big deal in Texas. And that was no exception with Baylor University. And I want you to know that Baylor University is actually located in Waco, Texas. And Waco, Texas and Baylor University are synonymous with each other. So The reason why it is really important that Baylor continue to be an institute within Waco, Texas, is because Baylor is actually the highest employer of the county in in which Waco sits. 
Okay. So if something bad happens to the college, it is going to hurt the entire county. So you have to think that now you're going to have this whole county always backing and supporting and making sure that this institution stay upright. In, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? right. So think about that in the there's, back yeah, of your there's mind. A lot the whole of, time. There's a lot invested. Yes. And I understand, but especially, you know, Baylor is considered it's a Christian school. So you would think that some values would be a little bit more upheld. And I will say, though, too, like you have to think like, yes, this is true with Baylor, but this is probably true for most schools. Yeah. Because you have to think, right? It's not just, it's like you said, it's the community, right? Because um, you got to think, right? Uh, even restaurants, you know, um, you know, night area, anything mm-hmm. you can have a good time, right? That's all based on the community around it, right? Like yeah, the restaurants university and towns. Restaurant, everything thrives. So, of course, everyone wants everything to do, go well. <laughs> Correct. And because David Bliss was supposed to resurrect the basketball program from its death, basically, he was given a very generous salary in 2003 of $600,000. A year? A year. You know, I mean, that's great. That's Um, really good. But I mean, I know, you know, in looking at other coaches, like, I'm sure they make a lot more. Well, yeah, but I mean, you have to think this is a program that is just completely dead so he has to like build it from the ground up so i'm sure if baylor basketball is resurrected from its death that he's gonna make a lot more than that oh yeah so patrick dennehy was not the only new recruit coming into baylor under the guidance of david bliss there was also rt gwynn ellis kidd jr and carlton dotson it was dotson that lived with patrick dennehy the two became close immediately Those that witnessed their interaction stated that the two had very similar personalities. They were sweet and funny guys, always goofing around. But they were both extremely talented. And another thing that they had in common was that neither of them were arrogant. And this is what made them really popular amongst their teammates. They were, and they said this more of Patrick Dennehy, that like, he was a natural leader. Right. He was probably the glue that kept them all together, too. Well, of the new recruits, of the totally. New recruits, yeah. So Carlton Dotson was from Herlock, Maryland, a small blue-collar town, and a resident of that town is going to describe it as a rundown shell of a town that those who are born into it dream of nothing but getting out. And everyone from Herlock, Maryland, knew that Dottie, because that's what they called Dotson, like his last name's Dotson, so they called him Dottie. Um, they said he was going to be their LeBron James. Now, that's that's a very, very big uh, comparison there. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I guess he's saying that, like, it's this small town. No, Nothing really happens there. Everyone dreams of getting out. But for the first time, when, when Carlton Dotson began playing for his high school, they were winning championships. And for the first time, life was breathed back into the town. And the coach, the high school coach that he had, he is going to reminisce about that first championship they won as they were driving back into town with like police escorts. People were on their porches clapping. And he said that was the most alive I've ever seen the town. Yeah. So he was their hero. Right. And that's exactly what LeBron did for that place too. So I, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. So in early June of 2003, another new recruit is going to come to Waco, Texas. And it was Patrick Dennehy who was tasked with becoming his chaperone. So someone that was going to kind of look over, look after him and like make sure he didn't get into trouble because, I mean, listen, college is 
college, especially when you go to a big school like this that's really into sports. If you're coming to a college like that and you're coming as a a student athlete, so you're almost like a mini celebrity. So college is crazy just being a regular student, but now you're being placed on this pedestal. So like you're going to go to a party and people are going to be um, wanting to offer you drugs, wanting to offer you things to drink. Girls are going to be um, wanting to hang out with you. And I can imagine for a a guy who's 18 to 20, it's going to be like super exciting and you're going to want to go out and party. And, you know, the team wanted to provide chaperones for these new recruits to, to kind of like rein them back in. Yeah, bring them back to reality because yes. you become like a superstar overnight, really. Yeah. Yeah. So Patrick Dennehy was tasked as being the chaperone of this new recruit whose name was Harvey Thomas. Now, Thomas's apartment wasn't ready yet. So he was going to temporarily be staying on the couch of Patrick Dennehy and Carlton Dotson's apartment. Now, the two men are going to have two additional roommates, one who is a team member and another one who is just like um, a regular student. Okay. Who was placed there. As soon as he got onto Baylor campus, Harvey Thomas is going to call his cousin, Larry Johnson, to come party with him and the rest of the team. Johnson excited about this, is going to promptly take a bus to Waco, Texas, and join his cousin on the couch at Patrick Dennehy's apartment. It was clear from very early on that Johnson was a hanger-on, which, as everyone knows, is the downfall of every great athlete. So true, right? It's a tale as old as time. Yeah. I mean, you do want to bring your friends along this journey with you, Because, I mean, it is a good character trait to remain friends that knew you before your fame, right? But then you have to recognize when someone is supportive of you or leeching off of you. Also, there's a time and place for it. I mean, he Mm -hmm. is still a student athlete. He has only been there for a couple of days. Correct. And now he wants to start bringing people over. I would... A couple... No, like that day. So that's even worse. Yeah. Right? So, like, you have to say to yourself, this is already, like, a recipe for disaster over the long term. Right? Because he needs to stay focused in his classes. He needs to stay focused on the game plan for his sports. So, like, this is just bad. Yeah. You know? So it only took a few days for the fragile balance of partying, schoolwork, and practices to crumble. Now, Patrick was very open with his family, friends, and girlfriend about what was going on in his life. He never had anything to hide. The first person he called was his friend from his hometown. His friend knew right away that there was something wrong with Pat. He seemed frantic. He asked him what was wrong, and Pat was very adamant that he did not want to talk about what was wrong over the phone, but he told him that he was being threatened And so was Carlton. And he said that no matter what happened, he was going to have Carlton's back. So this statement made his friend believe that maybe Carlton was the one who was being threatened and Pat was just involved and supporting his friend. But whatever was happening, it was clear that his friend was in a panic. Pat ended the call by saying, I can't tell you, but I need help. Now, this worried his friend, 
who made it a point to call Pat every day and make him promise that he would return to California in a few days for his, meaning his friend's, birthday so that they could figure this all out at home away from campus. And this is something that Pat's going to agree to. So it gives his friend a little bit of a peace of mind. But he was so confused. I mean, that's a really good friend, uh, first off, right? Yeah. Um, to really uh, have have his friends back. But um, that is weird. It's very weird behavior to have, you know? Um, I just... Especially to be scared to talk about it over the phone. Yeah. It alludes to something a little bit more serious. That would make me nervous if my friend told me about it. Absolutely. It's like, oh, you have to travel to California just to tell me what's going on? Okay. Like, that must be a really big deal. You must not be able to talk in right. front of people or, or you're not trusting of something. Or do you think your phone's being listened in on? Oh, that too. So it's like, whoa, what the heck yeah, is what, going it, on yeah, here? Yeah, what is happening? Yep. Okay, so we're going to take a short break here to hear from our first sponsor, Best Fiends. So after I finish all of my research for a case and the script is finally done... My brain needs a total break. I'm sure you can all relate because, I mean, who hasn't done a really good deep dive into a case? Well, a great way to clear your head of all those true crime facts is to play Best Fiends. I've been playing Best Fiends for over a year now, and it's still my go-to game. The increasingly harder levels and ever-changing events and benefits to playing have kept me hooked. And I'm now at level 850. And it's one of my greatest accomplishments. It is such a great feeling to finally complete a level and then get to open all of your crates to see the rewards that you've collected for achieving your goal. And like I've said before, I feel like I'm being rewarded as I play and it makes me want to stick with the game. And don't we all love a good challenge? Well, Best Fiends is going to give you over 5,000 of them. This includes all the levels of the game, as well as events and challenges that are going on at all times. Now, this is a challenge to complete a certain amount of levels, help raise a baby slug, or compete with other players to complete more challenges. With all of these events, I promise you will never be bored again. So True Crime Couple listeners, we highly encourage you to play Best Fiends today. You can download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Okay, let's get back into our show. So Pat is also going to talk to his girlfriend, who is also an athlete at Baylor, about the concerns that he was having. I don't know about Harvey Thomas, he told her. And she urged him to go to his coaches. They are supposed to be there for you, she said. Your best move is to go to them if you're nervous. Both Patrick and Carlton are going to agree, and they make the choice to go to their coaches. So on June 6, 2003, Carlton Dotson and Patrick Dennehy go to their coaches and tell them that while Harvey was staying at their apartment, a dispute had broken out over money. There had been money that had went missing. And... Pat and Carlton thought that Harvey was responsible for taking the money. So the dispute is going to escalate quite quickly. And Harvey Thomas and his cousin, Larry Johnson, are going to pull out a gun and put the weapon to their heads and threaten to kill them. Pat and Carlton asked the coaches what they should do. Should they file police reports about the missing money or about the threat with the weapons? It had to be 
really clear that the men were in fear. You have to think. Patrick Dennehy reaches out to his friend, eventually his parents, and his girlfriend about how terrified he was. And it's his girlfriend that finds out that he was scared of Harvey Thomas. Eventually his friend will find that out as well. And they go to the coaches. I mean, that's a lot. You would think that, I mean, how could they be making that up if they've gone to such, you know, to such lengths? Right. And it's corroborated because they've told several people. Right. Well, the coaches don't want to draw any attention to the program. So they tell their players, don't go to the police. We're going to handle this matter in-house. Well, Pat and Carlton must not have felt satisfied with that answer because they are going to go out the following day on June 7th and purchase firearms. They Okay, so they actually... Wow. I wonder how they were able to do that, being well, students. Well, they're, all, they're both over the age of 18, and Texas has a little bit more lenient gun rules That's than true. the rest of That's the country. True. Yeah. So they were probably allowed to carry on campus, I can imagine. I don't know. Or they can see, yeah. or they hit it. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. They definitely were not shy about the fact that they had guns because they did tell everyone they knew that they had guns and like a new thing that they started doing was going out and practicing shooting. So practicing in like these big clearings in Texas, they were practicing how to use the guns and their marksmanship. They were scared of something. Yeah, I mean, to go, like I said, to go to those lengths is kind of crazy. I mean, now you're also buying guns right. and now you're practicing. <laughs> it's like, what's going on here? Who are you afraid of? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're telling everyone, Harvey Thomas. Right. There has to be more to it, though. Right. Their fourth roommate at the time spoke about the presence of guns in the apartment. He stated that before Harvey Thomas had come to stay at the apartment for a few days, there had never been any guns. But after he left, there were a lot. He remembered that when he would get back to the apartment, the door would be dead bolted shut, so he would have to knock. Pat or Carlton would answer the door with a rifle in their hands. And they said that they were doing that for their protection against Harvey and Larry. They told the roommate that if he was alone, he should never open the door for anyone other than them. Now, at first, the roommate thought that maybe they were being paranoid. Until a few days later, when he was alone in the apartment and a knock came at the door. Now, this roommate had never met Larry or Harvey, so he could not speak on whether or not it was one of them at the door. But he knew that there was a man at the door holding a handgun, and he was not trying to conceal it. He was holding it upright so it could be seen through the people. The roommate never answered, like, opened the door, and eventually the man went away. But this just shows that I don't think this was paranoia from them, because someone came to their door with a gun. Yeah, I mean, this shows some validity to their claims, Yeah, right? I mean, now you have this random dude with a gun in front of the door. So right. that, was, that would scare anybody. Uh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> so once Pat and Carlton got the guns, like I said, they were obsessed with driving out to the fields around Waco and shooting them. They practiced aiming, uh, reloading them, because guns were something that was never present in either of their lives before this. And this is something that Pat's girlfriend and friend were worried about, because it almost seemed like their protection became an obsession. And a few days after this, Pat was supposed to be headed to California for his friend's birthday party, as he promised, which was supposed to be on June 12th. 
His friend called him to ask when he would be there. And Pat said that he was packing and that he would be there soon. Carlton was actually going to take the road trip with him as well. They were going to drive the Tahoe there. His friend said that Pat seemed a little off too. His friend said that when he talked to Pat on the phone, he seemed a little off. His friend told Pat that when he got there, everything would be better because they would go talk to the police. Pat then asked Carlton when they would be headed out. And his friend said that he heard Carlton saying something, but he couldn't really make out what he was saying. But then Pat returned to the phone and said, we'll be headed down soon. And this was on Thursday, June 12th. The next day was Friday the 13th. Some of the coaches were tasked with going to the classes of their players and checking to make sure that they were there. One of the coaches went to Pat's and Carlton's classes, and he noticed that both men were not there. However, they didn't do anything about this because they knew probably that the boys, who are good friends together, most likely just took a long weekend and kind of cut class on Friday, and most likely they'd be back on Monday. Now, if they were going to leave for California on Thursday, they were going to be missing class on Friday. Right, of course. So it's kind of just like right now, it's like, oh, they're not missing. Right, of course. When someone goes missing before a trip, that's the worst time that someone could go missing because everyone assumes they left. Right. Now, Pat was headed home not just for his friend's birthday, but also because that Sunday was Father's Day. He had a very close relationship with his stepfather, and he never missed a Father's Day celebration with him since he came into their lives. Well, Sunday came and went, and nothing came from Pat. Not a visit, a phone call, or even a card. And that was very strange. When he still did not call on Monday, Pat's mother and stepfather began reaching out to those who knew their son. His friend from town confirmed that Pat never showed up for his birthday. They called his girlfriend, and she had the same thing to say. He had not been heard from in any way since Thursday, and she was starting to get really worried. The next call was to the coaches, who tried to reassure Pat's parents that he probably was just out partying, but that they would keep them updated. Finally, they called Carlton, the man who was supposed to be with their son. But Carlton told them that Pat decided that he didn't want to leave for California, that he was going to stay at the apartment on campus. He was scared and said he was going to barricade himself in the apartment. Carlton said that he was not on campus, that instead he chose to go home once the trip to California had been canceled, and that was actually where he still was. Carlton told Pat's stepfather that a lot was happening, but again, he was too nervous to speak about this over the phone, but he would talk about it in person. So another day went by, and it's now June 17th. The next call that Pat's family made was to David Bliss directly. Bliss was very nonchalant with the family. He reassured them that he would be back and that he had everyone looking around campus. The family could have nothing but blind faith in the institution that they gave their son to. Although Bliss and the coaching staff seemed like they were not worried about what happened to Patrick Dennehy, the reality was that they were. They drove to the apartment to look for him or signs of his car, but they came up with nothing. They also talked to everyone he was friendly with, 
and unfortunately, they hadn't seen him either. Having enough with no one calling the police, Pat's childhood friend decided to go to Waco himself. He went to the apartment and demanded that the property manager open the door. When it was open, there was a weird smell coming from inside, like rotted food and dog excrements. It was like Pat left and had been expecting to return. On the bed was a half-packed suitcase, and in the apartment were Pat and Carlton's two puppy pit bulls. The dogs had been left. The man fed the dogs and left Pat a note letting him know that he had been there and that he wanted him to call him immediately and that he was going to take the dogs and take care of them until he got back, which he hoped was soon. Once again, really good friend, right? Make all that way, make go from California to, to Waco, Texas to check on his friend. It's like best friend award of the year. Totally. And now is taking the dogs because the dogs were left alone. I know. What a good guy. I know. It will be five days after his friend's visit to his empty apartment that Pat will be reported missing on June 23rd, 2003. The last time anyone saw Pat was June 12th, so that's 11 days wasted. Now, we know when it comes to a missing persons case, just important how every friggin' minute is. Oh, yeah. I mean, so much time has been wasted here. Like, you can't you can't get ahead of this thing. It's impossible. I understand thinking he's gone for the weekend. But once Monday came around, it should have been a report by Co- the school. Correct. Like, if he's not in class by Monday, you have to assume this is a little weird if he hasn't said and, anything. And he didn't go to his parents' house on Sunday for Father's Day. Correct. And he never showed up at the destination where he was supposed to be going. Or And he hasn't spoken to his friend, his girlfriend, and his parents either on top of that. Who he talked to every day, all right. of them. That's weird. Weird. So the police wanted to question all of Pat's teammates, but Bliss was very clear that he or another coach would sit in on all the interviews that the boys gave. Now, this is something that's going to aggravate police because they want the players to be open and honest with them. They're not necessarily going to feel that way when their coaches are sitting next to them. But it still, slowly, but it still came out that Harvey Thomas had been staying with Pat and Dotson, that money had gone missing, and the two men had suspected that Thomas took it, and there was some type of altercation. The coaches said that they did talk to Harvey about the incident, and that he denied that anything ever took place. Like, he denied the money went missing, he denied that Larry pulled out a gun, And the coaching staff said that they completely believed Harvey Thomas when he told them that nothing happened. Now, keep in mind that this is what the assistant coaching staff is stating. And David Bliss denied knowing anything about them reporting feeling uncomfortable, reporting the stealing money, reporting the threat and the gun usage. And Bliss is denying even talking to Harvey Thomas. He's denying everything. And what I have to say about that is that is total BS. And the reason why I say that is because not just because he's a big 12 coach, but just any coach of any program, all those people know everything. There's If you're a head coach of a program, no matter what sport, you know exactly what's going on with all your players, especially one of your top new recruits that you've gone above and beyond for. To get them there. 100%. So don't tell me that you didn't know anything at all. Whether it was directly with Patrick or, you know, had to or do with him. Or even with Dotson. Or Dotson, Or somebody. your new guy who arrived. He, he, listen, 
That's I can tell you right now that that's a lie. You know everything as a head coach. I agree with you. So now at this point, the family of Pat. So now at this point, the family of Patrick Dennehy definitely was not going to sit back and take any of the BS that they felt was going on. The university was dragging their feet and defending Thomas for some reason, so they chose to take their case to the media. Pat's parents and his friend hit all of the news circuits and ESPN to talk about Pat having gone missing. They also discussed the fact that Harvey Thomas had threatened him and his cousin had pulled out a gun, and the fact that he and his friend Carlton were terrified. And that the university urged them not to call the police, said they would handle everything in-house, but handled nothing. And didn't even get involved in reporting him missing. They were the ones telling the family, just wait, just wait. Right. I mean, that, this is pretty crazy. I, I mean, where is the accountability so far here? Right. No one wants to take uh, responsibility for you know not reporting anything, kind of just not getting police involved when they probably should have. Right. This is already uh, kind of spiraling out of control here. Well, this is why, and this is the point where the family is going to say, we are no longer dealing with the university. We're going to the media. We're going to the police. We're not going to allow you to screw this up anymore. Yeah. And I would do the same thing. Well, so would I. So David Bliss and other administrators from the college are going to also make their rounds on media outlets. And they're going to deny all of these claims. And at this point, the fact that the university is impeding this investigation and lying is enough to make you scream. But it really does only get worse from here. (laughs) You got that right. So the police began searching the areas where people said that Pat and Carlton would go shooting, but nothing was found. Harvey Thomas was questioned by the police, and he upheld that there had never been a dispute over missing money and that neither he or his cousin pulled out a gun on the two men. The next break would come on June 26th, almost two weeks since Pat was last seen. His Chevy Tahoe had been found completely wiped of prints and without its license plates, at a shopping mall in Virginia Beach, Virginia, 1,000 miles away from Baylor University. Huh. That's interesting. Yes. This is like, this story just has so many twists. So the strange thing about this is that Virginia Beach is not too far away from where Carlton Dotson lived. Um, If anyone's from the United States, there's sections of Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware that just become like one area. Like they're just all so close. Yeah. So while investigators from Waco were out in Virginia, basically looking at the Tahoe, they chose to stop in and have a talk with Dotson, who had not returned to campus. At the time, he wasn't actually home in Maryland. He was staying with his grandmother in Seaford, Delaware. They went to her house and asked Carlton if they could talk to him down at the station, um, the Seaford station, and he agreed to do so. During the interview, Carlton talked a lot. He talked about the program at Baylor and how messed up he thought all of it was and things that he knew to be going on there. Like, for example, he said that one of the coaches, a man by the name of Abar Rouse, was actually a drug pusher. And all of the new recruits were made to sell drugs for him, mainly cocaine. So the cops, 
definitely made a note of this and they thanked Carlton for the information, but they now wanted to talk about Patrick Dennehy. When Pat's name was brought up, Carlton would clam up and he would say either that he didn't want to talk about him. He would only half answer the questions that the investigators were posing to him, or he would just evade the questions altogether. So basically what's happening here is he's very free talking and flowing when it comes to other topics. But when it comes to his best friend who's been missing, he doesn't want to talk about it. So that's very suspicious behavior. Oh, yeah, it is. Because I think he's concerned that it would implicate him somehow. And I guess maybe that's what he's trying to avoid. Right. But I mean, there's a lot going on here. Yeah, that's a pretty big revelation about the university. So now, like they do in all police interviews, the detectives leave the room while the videotape is still rolling. And this usually helps determine guilt by observing the person's body language. I mean, we've seen it all. We've seen like headstands by Jody Arias. We've seen Casey Anthony singing. Like people just guilty people do strange things in interrogation rooms while they're sitting by themselves. I mean, let's get let's get real though. I think anybody probably would because I imagine like if you're in there for a long amount of time. Yeah. I mean, me, me I'd probably be tapping on the desk like pretending to play the drums like cuz I get antsy. You yeah. know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm I'm kind You're of You're antsy when we record the podcast. Oh yeah, <laughs> totally. Like my leg keeps going. It's it's just something that I do, but it's a tick. But um yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Like when they do, when you just watch those videos like that. Yeah, you're like, ooh, do I do ooh, weird things? Do I do weird things when I'm being watched? Well, I always do weird things. But <laughs> um, he is going to start like incoherently talking to himself while he's left alone in the room. And he's just like babbling and you really can't make out what he's saying. But he's definitely talking to himself a lot, which was interesting, investigators said. And we'll get into that later. So finally, when the detective came back, he asked him... You know, what was Pat like as a person? And this is when Carlton made a big mistake. He said he was, and then he corrected himself and said he is a free-spirited person. And there it is. Detectives always say it's a big indication when someone starts talking about someone in past tense because they know something already. He was. Yep. So they ask him when was the last time that he saw his friend And that was when Carlton is going to finally say that the interview needed to be over, right? He was there voluntarily, so he could end the interview at any time. So after this, he hired a lawyer because it was obvious now that he was a person of interest, which is something that's going to greatly confuse Pat's family and friend and girlfriend because they knew how much the two men really just connected and liked each other. So... And on top of that, they knew how scared both men were of something. Yeah. So it's weird that the guy who was like, I guess, essentially, you could say his partner is the one who's the suspect in his disappearance. It's a little strange. It's a weird turn of events. It, it is weird how you can go from where he is right now, not wanting to really give any information. But before all of this, they were buddy, buddy. Yeah. They played sports together. They were always around each other. 
they were quickly becoming really good friends. So from going from to go from that to now not wanting to give information out is kind of weird. Just like if you went missing and you were my friend, let's just say, and you know, well, we are yeah. friends, we love we're each other. Oh, yeah. uh, but anyway, <laughs> but like if you were my friend, and then like you know you went missing, and then I'm not even distraught about it, and then on top of that, I won't even give any information that I possibly might know to investigators. Right. Is a red flag. And you're talking about me in the past tense. Correct. Red flags all over this. Yeah. You might as well just paint me red. Right. And stick you on a flagpole. And stick me on a flagpole. (laughs) So now the Waco police had a lot going on at this point, right? In the middle of their missing persons case, they were just informed about a drug ring within the Baylor basketball department. (laughs) It's pretty big. Like what? Yeah. So Coach Abar was questioned by the Waco Police Department. They asked him if he was distributing drugs through the basketball team, and he was shocked. Utter disbelief. See, what the Waco Police did not know was that Abar Rouse had only gotten the job at Baylor 12 days previously. So he's basically saying, like, how could I already have started a drug operation in 12 days? Really? Yeah. So they asked him if he would take a polygraph test, and he said he would. And he ended up passing the lie detector test. But the poor man was freaking out because, I mean, being a coach at Baylor was his dream job. He'd gone to Baylor himself, so he loved the institution, and he always wanted to be a coach. He had a love for basketball. So he didn't want this bizarre false allegation to jeopardize his job. And I completely agree with that. At this point, it was June 28th, and Pat's family, his friend, and his girlfriend were frustrated. Like, families always are when their loved one goes missing, because you just feel like no one cares like you do, right? So you always want to be out there. You always want to be looking. You just, you want to light a flame underneath everyone. Yeah, to get everyone, everybody looking and everything. This is even worse, though. Right, we've talked about it in the past where like families have unanswered questions, right? Oh, totally. But this is even worse if you really think about this because it's not oh they're just missing. You knew that there was clear indications of something that was wrong with your son or boyfriend or whatever. You knew something was wrong. He clearly indicated it to you guys, and then he went missing. So this is even worse than that. Yeah, because you knew he was in danger. It's not just like. Oh, maybe something happened. He'll come up. He'll be fine. It was like he was scared of something and now he's missing. You're right. It was cause for concern. Correct. Well, they believed that they could do something else. They believed that because Pat was headed to California from Texas, but his car was found in Virginia, that the FBI should be involved at this point. But they weren't. They felt like no one was paying attention. So Patrick Dennehy's girlfriend... Jessica Marlowe, is going to do something that she knew would have to draw the attention of not just the national media, but also, legally, the FBI. She reported that she and Patrick had both received money and bribes from Baylor University for their involvement in different athletic programs. This was a direct violation of the NCAA Code of Conduct. I'm not surprised. Well, it's a big, bold move, and I love it. Oh, it's big. I mean, listen, you have to think, right? If I was missing or if you were missing, I would have done the same thing. If no one else is getting any, if there's no leeway here and no one's taking this uh, as serious as they should be, um, and because it's not as high profile as it should be, then that's the only thing you're left to do is to just blow the top off this whole thing. Right. 
It's like you're doing something wrong and we're not scared of you. Right. So I commend her for that. When news of Baylor's discretions got out and the fact that there had to now be a hearing for the university and there was a missing student involved, every news outlet took on the story and the FBI was introduced to the case. It was revealed that, in fact, Patrick Dennehy and his family were lied to. He had never been on scholarship. Right. Okay, so that's odd because if he was not on scholarship and he his parents couldn't afford it, then how was he going there? Well, who was paying for his tuition? Who was paying for his student housing? Who was paying for his brand new Chevy Tahoe? Who was paying for his food, his alcohol? Right. His drugs. Because, I mean, I'm Patrick Dennehy smoked pot. So he wasn't like a heavy drug user, but he rec- recreationally is going to smoke. Okay. Just like so many other college kids do. So not saying there's anything like bad yeah. about this, but we're just saying who's going to pay for this? I mean, these things aren't free. Well, right, right now, let me just kind of uh, inject this into just the podcast. Every school, every single school has boosters. Okay. People who are invested in the school district, whether they're alumni or they're just big pocket people who want to have some kind of voice in a program, they'll boost, they'll give people money. It's a problem. I think it shouldn't exist. It's it, it's just, it, it money's the water, right? But this is very commonplace as far as, you know, giving money away to athletes so they can do what they need to do. And one of the biggest problems is this is a debate in the sports world right now is, you know, none of this would exist if the college players were paid for their college, um, you know, you know their, likely, their likeness and image while they're at that school. Right. A lot of people feel that that should be, it should be a right that they get their free education and that should be the end of it. But then the other, there's the other side that says they should be paid as on top of being, um, having their education being paid for. Right, because their institution makes so much money off of, the work that they're doing for the sports program. And you know what? I'll throw this out for people who, like for the normal layman, right? Think about Michael Jordan, okay? One of the best basketball players of all time. He went to North Carolina University, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. They still make money off of his college jersey because people still buy it. So just imagine that. He's been retired how long? They're still making money because they are still printing and making his college jersey. Right, because they own the rights to his college career, basically. So it's like, I'm sure Michael Jordan's getting a cut, but the school is, the, the college is... Well, now, is, because Michael Jordan would well, not right. allow that to happen. Correct. <laughs> but, like, do you see what I'm saying? So my, my personal opinion on it, really quickly, is that college athletes should be paid a little bit, just a little bit, because some of these kids do come from really bad areas, and it's their way out. And I know that they get their college paid for and everything, but, you know, maybe, you know, it, it would be nice to give them something. I'm not saying it needs to be exorbitant or anything. It just needs to be something. Well, I mean, it would be nice for them to have, like, I mean, obviously I know what kids do, with college kids do with money, not the best things. But if they were given, like, even some, like, access to financial advisors, I think that would be positive because when you are an athlete, an injury on the field is something that could happen at any second. And then now 
boom, your whole career is done. I agree. And just to kind of bring it back into the case, right? Why I bring all this up is because if you did pay the athlete just a tiny bit, it would get rid of these boosters and these the, shady and boosters. all these shady things that go on in the background. Correct. Okay, if he's a college kid there, why does he have a vehicle? Who paid for it? So all that shady Who's stuff goes for away. All of this, right? So what I'm saying is, when an athlete gets paid like they should be, I think you wouldn't have the shady dealings that are happening. I understand. And also. Sometimes when these college kids do go to the NFL or NBA or wherever else they're going, they have to pay that back to the booster. Sometimes. That's screwed up. Because then now you feel like indebted to... And then who decides when you have to pay it back or not? Well, that's what I'm saying. It becomes like a like a little bit of like a loan shark thing. That's rude. Right? It's like... It's it's like uh, essentially it's a loan. Yeah. Right? So it's just like really shady and it still goes on, I'm sure. So it's like here, you're going to be 19 years old. You really can't make decisions. Yeah, and I'm, you're going to rack up this bill, and then you're going to have to pay me back for it. Correct. And then what if that kid never even makes it into the NFL? Well, I'm sure, uh, you know, they, I know. They, they do their research into these kids, and it becomes like a business. So wow. it's just very shady. So if you pay the athlete, you get rid of all that. Anyway, though, I just wanted to give people a different side to that and to let make it aware, like make right. people aware. So, Well, thanks, John. No problem. <laughs> so, of course, as this is being looked into... So is the past of everyone involved. So everyone is being investigated at this point, right? Because as a media outlet, you want to have a different twist on the story. So like, how many times can you say, oh, Baylor's doing this and it goes against the NCAA? You want to bring something new to the table. So what media outlets were doing were looking into the past of David Bliss. And it quickly comes up that he had actually been part of a similar scandal back in 1987, the SMU football and basketball scandal, which led to the school being banned from the NCAA football for one entire year. Um, and it's known as the death sentence. And of course, Bliss is going to deny any involvement, but, I mean, the SMU scandal was a pretty big deal in 1987. Yeah, I mean, it was, actually, it was actually going, well, that scandal went from, like, the 70s to the mid-80s. Wow. And that was essentially the same thing. It had to do with promising kids scholarships to get them in the door, right, to be competitive against these other bigger schools that were way bigger than SMU. Meanwhile, there was no scholarship there. And kind of like Patrick, right? Right. Where right now, no one's paying. He didn't have. have he didn't have a scholarship. But they're promising the family. But they're that promising there is. the scholar. Uh, yes, and that you know. So somehow it is being paid for. I'm doing air quotes, but it's not a legit scholarship. And if I'm not mistaken, colleges only have a, 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 a certain set, like uh, amount of scholarships they're allowed to hand out for that year. Okay. That's why there's such things as walk-ons. So like a, a football player might have a walk-on year where he walks on, no scholarship. But then the following year, he could possibly get a partial or full. Depending if a scholarship on, graduated or something. Or he proved that he had the talent to get a scholarship. Okay. Yeah, that was a big scandal. And it um, not many people know because when you think about it and the, the penalty came on to SMU just for football, but it also... Um, it was actually a basketball player that kind of blew it all up because there was one kid, Cronky, I think his name was. Um, it began with a K. He looked around one day and he realized that all of his teammates were being paid to play basketball at SMU. And then he was like, 
well, I want to play. I want to get paid. <laughs> like, why am I the only one not getting paid to be here? Right, when you see your teammates driving around in Ford Mustangs, you want to well, know. He was the one who's actually given. So he goes to David Bliss and he says, I want to get paid or I'm going to tell people that everyone's getting paid. And the next day, David Bliss gave him a Ford Mustang. Crazy. Yeah. So he's corrupt, too. Well, and the thing is, is that David Bliss was able to, like, avoid detection because he was, like, just an assistant coach at this time. So he was a small player in this massive scandal. So he was able to just go to a new university, start completely fresh. Right. And what did you say in the beginning of the podcast? That he was known to resurrect programs, correct? Right. Okay, well, then maybe that's how he did it. Because he's always doing that, right, it. exactly. So he's taking credit for being like this guru to fix dead right. teams. Meanwhile, no one ever, you know, he put SMU on the map because SMU was no big, it wasn't really a big deal in sports. And Baylor, yeah, Baylor was Baylor, but it was not as big as it could have been or will become. So, right. This guy is not a magician, or I should say, he's not like a, he doesn't fix things. Right. He's just a scam artist, and this is what he does. He yes. breaks the rules in order to, you know, get ahead in the NCAA but the only reason why this is actually coming down on him right now is because the one person that he probably did this to like to finagle him to get to Baylor is now missing right right or this still would not have been a big deal I completely agree with you and it's just I think something that was planned by Baylor because to give this man who was wealthy because David Bliss was wealthy a $600,000 a year paycheck well what what do they think he's using some of that money for you know what anything's possible and who knows he could have been reimbursed for the money that he laid out (laughs) right you don't even know right so once the scandal was broken at baylor an investigative committee was opened to look into the payment of their athletes so we're just going to put that part of the case on the back burner for now and we're going to get back into the missing persons case of patrick dennehy On July 17th, 2003, just about five weeks after Pat had gone missing, Carlton Dotson was going to reach out to his county sheriff's office and say that he wanted to make a statement. He also requested the presence of the FBI. At this point, the FBI wanted to take over the questioning. Once they were able to sit down with Carlton, they asked him what he wanted to tell them. There are demonic spirits after me, he said. What do you mean by that? The agent replied back. There are people trying to do things, trying to take me out since I've been in Waco. And this is when the agent interjects and asked if Carlton wanted to speak to the Waco police. No, he replied. And his reply was loud and scared. Not there, he said. So clearly he's scared of the Waco police. Um, And obviously, maybe a little delusional at this point. He said, I have been taken over by a higher power. And then he began to laugh to himself. My family is a family of prophets. The agent then asked, do you believe yourself to be a prophet? And he his response was another laugh. And he said, I'm much more than that. And then he was asked, is something bothering you? And he replied that all men should sin, but there is time to repent. And they said, are you trying to repent right now? And he said, I've already been forgiven for any sin that I committed. And just like that, he chose to leave the meeting. So 
I think this interview, because you can listen to it, um, the audio tape from it is available. It is clear that he is not in um, the right state of mind. He's clearly having delusions. He's it, like inappropriate bursts of laughter that are like maniacal, like scary laughter. Yeah. And he is having delusions. And it's very similar to the way he was acting when left alone in the interrogation room when he was like mumbling and talking to himself. I believe that at this point, Carlton Dotson is showing signs of mental illness. And what is scary? Um, well, like, I don't want to say scary because I don't want there to be a stigma against mental illness. But what is so uncertain about mental illness is that sometimes it can come on very suddenly and it does tend to begin to show itself in your 20s. Right, right. I've heard that before. So, I mean, Carlton Dotson was described as this amazing guy, this star athlete. He was going to do everything for his hometown. He was funny. He was goofy. He was friendly. He had it together. I mean, him and Patrick Dennehy became friends because they were so similar in their good-naturedness. And now all of a sudden we see this crumble in this man. Yeah, it is very sudden. I will will admit, though, that... um... I agree with you. There, are, that those are obvious signs of psychosis, right? Or yes. something's going on there. Um, but to somebody that might not understand how mental illness works, right? This this would be played off as oh, he's building his own case, insanity play, and for an insanity play. Yeah, he knows he's being recorded, and I'm not saying this is how I feel. I'm just saying this is how. Well, he requested this interview, right? And his lawyer even called the media. Yeah. So this is why the FBI is a little like, right. what's this guy doing? That's what doing? I'm saying. So it's not how I view this, but this is how they're probably viewing this. Um, you know, that he's building his own case for sanity, uh, for a sanity plea. Right. Or, 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 you know, that way if something does fall down on this guy, he, they, he, it's, there's a way for him to get out of this. Right. In some form, whether it be institutionalized or whatever. But yeah, like, yeah, I mean, that's could, what it's, that's could, what they would sound, you know, think it sounds like. Sorry for interrupting you. That's okay. I talk over you sometimes. It's, it's all good. It's a bad habit. Um, I talk over everybody, not just John, guys. So don't worry. I don't discriminate against <laughs> who I talk over. Um, I think that they, the FBI was very clear in this interrogation that they did not believe this. And I think that that was a mistake. Believe in his, believe in what? The psychosis? Yes. Right. Yeah. So now, like I said, the media had also been called by Carlton's lawyer. So there were photographs and videos of Carlton leaving the police station. And it was actually his high school basketball coach that was the one who brought him to the station and back home. And the coach recounted later that he was very worried for Carlton because he was not in the right frame of mind. He stated that Carlton was talking about how he shouldn't worry because... He, the coach, was already going to heaven. He had seen him there. His family also said that he was acting erratically. He wasn't eating or sleeping, and he paced the house and wandered room to room reading passages from the Bible. And he also was obsessed with continually sweeping the floor, saying that heaven is never dirty. So, like, he was cleaning obsessively. So, there was a break somewhere in this man's life. 
Yeah, no, you're a hundred percent right, mm-hmm. and it, it, like you said, it's it's very sudden. Yes, and I believe that it is psychosis. So I mean, if you know, if that's the case, then very very sudden. It's, it's either like his mental illness was brought to the forefront in his mind because something either happened that's going to allow this break, this like nervous breakdown, or mental illness is developing. Yeah, either he was involved in something, or he mm-hmm. witnessed something. Or maybe in a combination of both, and that's what did it? Yeah. It's possible. Well, four days after his requested interview with the FBI, Carlton is going to place a desperate call to 911. A Kent County dispatcher is going to answer the call. He was acting erratically again. He said that he had something to say to the Dorchester police. The dispatcher asked if he was wanted by them, and he said, Oh no, but they are keeping tabs on me. And this is going to prompt a visit from a patrol car. The officer noticed that when he got there, that Carlton was acting very strangely. So he talked him in to visiting a hospital. From there, the FBI was contacted. They traveled to the hospital and convinced Carlton to have another meeting with them. He agreed to do so. And he met them back at the hotel room where the agents were staying. There, they let him talk and ramble for a while. And then, about 30 minutes in, he confesses. So he told the agents that Pat had asked him if he wanted to go shooting before they left for California, and that he agreed. They left in his Tahoe, Carlton with his 9mm, and Pat with his 32 caliber. Once they got to a clearing, Carlton said that Pat pointed the gun at him, and he pulled the trigger but the gun jammed. Pat then tried to reload his weapon, but two rounds fell to the ground. Carlton said that that was when he said, Father, please forgive me. And he pointed the gun at Pat and shot him in the head. He said then he drove the car to Dallas, where he threw a gun in a lake. And from there, he drove back to Maryland where his uncle helped him clean the car. They removed the plates and hid them in the woods. Then they drove separately to a shopping mall in Virginia Beach, where they wiped the entire vehicle down for prints. Carlton said the entire time he was just so scared and that he had no idea what to do. So it seemed as if he was claiming self-defense. After this confession, he breathed a sigh of relief and fell back on the bed. He was so relieved it was over. Eventually, a warrant was obtained, and Carlton Dotson was arrested for the murder of his friend, Patrick Dennehy. News of the arrest reached the Waco Police Department, just as Harvey Thomas was done taking a polygraph test, which he claimed he passed. He was told then that he was no longer a suspect in the murder because Carlton Dotson had just confessed. Once arrested, Carlton was shown a map and asked to identify an area in which Pat's body had been left. He said that it was hard to tell from a map, but he gave them a general area of where to find the body. The district attorney made it abundantly clear that he could not prosecute Carlton without the body. In the state of Texas, you cannot convict someone solely based on an uncorroborated personal confession. 
This law was put into effect to protect the mentally ill from their own false confessions. What a great law. I think that this is something that really should be present in every state because if you have a false confession, especially one that's uncorroborated, I mean, what is to say that that's what took place? Like, there needs to be evidence to back up a confession or someone could just rush to prosecute and someone goes to jail for the crime that they didn't commit because of mental instability. I agree with you. And it also helps it helps other people. You know, if you're able to get someone, uh, you know, accused and then, you know, uh, prosecuted and put in jail, right? That's good on, on the, what, the DA, right? Yeah. That looks great on them. Like, and, and like, I don't know. It's just, it's a very hard thing to, to um, get involved in. Murky and waters. Have, and have yeah. a conversation about. But, yeah, I mean. But I just think that if someone gives a confession, that's wonderful. Yes. But if evidence doesn't back up their confession, then you got to go down different avenues. Oh, I agree. I agree. So this is why the DA was very adamant about them finding a body. So a massive search was launched, and eventually a detective walking in a clearing first smelled body decomposition in the air. As he got closer to the smell, he saw a box of ammo lying on the ground. He notified the county once the body was found and said a prayer. It was July 25th, 2003. For Six weeks, Pat Dennehy had been exposed to the unforgiving Texas sun, which caused an accelerated decomposition. He had to be identified through dental records. And Pat's stepfather, in the documentary, tearfully recalled having to tell Pat's mother and sister that their son and brother had died. There was no hope anymore. Yeah. And that's hard, because... I mean, that's the one thing that you always hold on to is the likelihood of one day seeing them again. And when you don't have that, I can imagine that you fall into a very deep and dark place, you know, because that's just what keeps you above water. So to not have that and to know it's it's over is uh, sad. Very sad. Okay, we're going to take a break here to hear from our final sponsor of the show, BetterHelp. Is there something that could be interfering with your happiness or maybe just preventing you from achieving a goal or something you deserve? I have definitely felt that way in the past, but it was something that professional counseling has helped me work past and make me realize my own self-worth. It is when these mental health boundaries have been broken down that your true potential and happiness can be achieved. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You would be able to start communicating in under 48 hours. Please know that BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It is not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. This service is available for clients worldwide. You can log on to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as you do with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. 
Here is an example from one review from someone who had used BetterHelp from September 26th. We have only had one session together, but my counselor made me feel seen, heard, and understood. He validated emotions and thoughts that I doubted and gave me solid advice and support on how to navigate manipulative family relationships. Visit BetterHelp.com TCC. That's BetterHelp. And join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. There's also a special offer for True Crime Couple listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com TCC. Okay, let's get back to the show. After Pat's body was found, David Bliss never made a statement to the media. In fact, only the athletic director for the university did. A man Pat barely met twice talked about how sad his loss was in a very brief statement. And that was it. But that might have been because Baylor was going through some of its own issues. The NCAA had finally got together the investigative committee. However, one of the biggest problems was that the attorney on the committee that was overseeing everything was actually a lawyer from Baylor and a very close friend of David Bliss. How's that even allowed? Yeah, I, I would think that's like kind of conflict of interest, right? Uh, yeah, totally. Um, on two levels, because it's his friend and because he's affiliated with the university. So. Yeah, weird. As soon as the committee was put together, Bliss is going to call a coach's meeting. We know what was said at this meeting because of the new coach, Abar Rouse, the one that we had talked about before that Carlton said was like dealing drugs. At this meeting... Coach Bliss was talking about how once he had found drugs in Pat's room and he had to be reprimanded. He said out loud, if someone would just come out and say that they were the ones that paid Dennehy, then I would buy them a Cadillac. Hell, I'd buy him four. Then he said, maybe it was drugs. Maybe we just say he was selling drugs and that's how he was paying for everything. Astounded that Bliss would talk about a former player like this, one who had just been found dead, murdered. He said, Coach, we can't operate like that. And Bliss looked at him and said, Do you want to get fired? And that's when Abar stopped talking. Now, I this is the, the kind of route that Bliss is going to go down as he's going to try and blame Patrick Dennehy for basically everything. And he's going to say that he was a drug dealer and that's how he was getting all of this money. But I mean, he completely contradicts his actions late, uh, like in the beginning of the season because Dennehy was made a chaperone to new recruits. So it was obviously someone he held in high well, esteem. Well, I, I could say that that's not the case. And, and I'll tell you why right now. You have to think, what other strategy could you use to bring in more talent right, than bringing one of your new bright stars as a way of saying, hey, look what I got. Look at me. Like I got a car. I have an apartment. I don't have no, to. No, no. I'm talking about, like, he has to have been someone that was reliable because he was made a chaperone. Oh, well, yeah, 100%. Yeah. I, I'm, sh- I'm sure he was, but what I'm just trying to say is he's using him as a chaperone. To show all the flashy things. Correct. And that what you could obtain by coming to Baylor. Right, right. I see what you're you saying. You know what I'm saying? It's a technique. Yeah, it's even using the pros. 
They're like, oh, uh, LeBron James on the Lakers? Come to the Lakers, you'll win a championship. I it's, it's like that. Right, you know right. You, you could have yeah. what I have. You could have what I have. Yeah. Later that day, after like Abar Rouse is going to speak up during that meeting, he walks into his office and he finds his contract laying out on his desk. And there had been a few lines highlighted. And it was the part about how Bliss could fire whoever he wanted at his own discretion. So that was basically a threat. Yeah, without even having to say anything. <laughs> it was also the last straw for Abar. He was idealistic. He loved Baylor. He loved being a coach. And he didn't want to sit back and watch a man be dragged through the mud after he had been murdered. And he didn't want to watch his beloved school also be taken down the same road. All because of David Bliss and whatever he was trying to do or trying to hide. So he bought a voice recorder and he chose to wire himself. So during all of these meetings and during this like cover up conspiracy, Abar Rouse is going to be secretly recording David Bliss. I mean, that's super ballsy, but you know what? You know what? I'm I'm glad because now now we all we, everyone could know what he's all about. What now what, we uh, know the truth. Yeah, you know, we know the truth. And what I think is screwed up, um, and I I very rarely like inter- interject my opinion because I kind of like treating this podcast like I treat my classroom, where I try to cr- be like this neutral person, so like my students or my listeners can like feel like. No one's being ostracized. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or that people are free to express their opinions because I haven't come down one way or the other. But here, I mean, there's a clear right and wrong here. And what I didn't like, and it was also shown in the documentary, was that other coaches from other institutions and and very well-respected coaches are going to come out and they're going to say what Abar did was wrong. And they're not going to come out and say what David Bliss did was wrong. You know, it's kind of like, I think that they're not understanding the magnitude of the situation, right? right? Because they're not the ones at Baylor. They're they're respected programs. But if but if the shoe was on the other foot, this would be a, a major catastrophe. I think that they don't. They think what Abar did was wrong because they think very old school, where it's like, I'm your head coach. You're my assistant coach. You respect me. I respect blindly you. Blindly follow Bl- me. And blindly follow and just go, you know, just do what I tell you to do. Right. But how would they feel if Patrick Dennehy was their son? Well, well, that's what I'm trying to say. There's you know, no empathy. This, or if this happened to their program, it would be a catastrophe. It would be bigger. Right. Imagine. Because Coach K said that from Duke. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think it's Jim Beheim said that and uh, somebody else. But yeah, it's like all these guys said the same thing. It's and that sad. was on ESPN too, so it's yeah, it's you know, it was kind of like jarring a little bit. Yeah, to hear them say that, it's like yeah. Now you are the example for all of these young men who are now. I mean, come on, look at the problems that we have with professional athletes and domestic abuse, drug issues, violence issues. Well, I mean, maybe someone needs to start setting better examples for these men. It's it starts with the coaches. That's who they look up to. Yeah. And they're basically saying, like, no, like, keep your mouth shut. It's easier to say that about people if you're not the one going through it, right? Right. I mean, that's bottom line. 
So, I mean, really what I think Avar did was the, the correct thing to be like, this is wrong and I'm not going to stand for this injustice because Patrick Dennehy, I mean, and he only knew him for a short amount of time, but he was like, this was a good guy. Yeah, but could I just say one thing, though? And this mm-hmm. has nothing to do against his character because everyone would do this. Right. Uh, yes, I agree with you. He did do that for Patrick, right? You know, like he feels bad about what's what's happening to And Denny. the program. Like he didn't want Baylor. Right. Like he didn't want people to think like, oh, this is a Baylor thing. He right. was like, no, this is a David Bliss thing. Right. But more importantly, above all else, he was also doing it to save his own ass. He oh, didn't, yeah. He didn't want anybody to be like, you know... um, you had some involvement. Oh, you were accused of uh, selling drugs through your players. No, he wanted to make sure that by wearing a wire, he protected himself in the for the future. Yeah, and that's smart. But he did it for himself. There was there was several motives several for motives. the recording. I agree. And I actually, and you know, what, really quickly, I think it's actually really wrong that they even accused him of that. Or like they didn't, they just kind of. Well, they didn't want to help him because. Right. When the Waco police went to go question Abar Rouse, he even asked David Bliss, he goes, um, should I get uh, a lawyer? And Bliss was like, well, did you do it? And it's kind of like, dude, you're supposed to be helping. It's like, I think that was a motivation too for Abar on top of just getting that highlighted contract on his desk where it was like, you're not going to help me, but you want me to help you. Like you want me to commit perjury for you. Correct. And that's exactly why he wears the wire. Right. I, I understand it. Because no one would believe a man. Like, if if Abar Rouse was going to come out and say, this is what David Bliss said in meetings, no one would believe him. So he yeah. needed the recordings. Yeah. And what better person to protect yourself than yourself, right? I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, that's the be- it's their best course of action. So basically, we have three days of recordings during which um, there were coaching meetings and meetings with the players. All of them were facilitated by and attended by David Bliss. So the first day of recordings was on July 30th. And of course, we're only going to go over the highlights of each day's recordings because they are actually hours long. So on this day, Bliss stood at a board that is usually used to um, write plays on, and he wrote the numbers 2,000 and 7,000 on the board. He told the men looking at him that he knew what he was doing because he had gone 30 years without being questioned by an NCAA investigator, and that was saying something. He also said that this is what we have to do for the lawyers. We need to get them $2,000 because that will explain the down payment for the Tahoe and $7,000 because that would cover his tuition and the rest of the money and things we can blame on him dealing drugs. And this is a direct quote. Honestly, no one can say we paid his tuition because he's dead. He said that he will have Gwen, Kid, and Harvey Thomas all say that Pat was selling drugs. And then Bliss went on to plan the whole story out. The boys will say that they went over to Pat's and Carlton's to smoke weed. And then Pat came out with a tray of drugs, pot, mushrooms, pills, and wads of cash. And he's basically going to admit to selling drugs. And then someone asked Bliss, is Harvey Thomas willing to do that? And Bliss responded, hell yes. Hell yes, he would. 
We covered for him. He's the reason we're in this mess. He'll lie because we did for him. What? Yeah. So now <laughs> there is a crazy web going on right now. And I can't wait to the end of the episode because I think I came up with something. Well, now it's like you're even calling to question. And this is like what Abar Rouse was saying um, in the interview was like, now you're like, did Carlton Dotson even kill Patrick Dennehy? I think he's the fall guy. I mean, like, it's literally insane because now we have David Bliss on recording admitting that they lied for Harvey Thomas. So that means that they had, they lied about him threatening Dennehy and Carlton. And they lied about his cousin, Larry Johnson, having a gun. Yeah. So now it's like, wow, there is like so much more to this story here. And, and there's a there's a murder investigation, buddy. This yeah. is not this goes. I mean, obviously, in his mind, all he cares about is himself and his coaching program. Someone died. Yeah. So that leads us to the second day of recordings. On July 31st, Abar was sitting in the locker room with Ellis Kidd Jr. and coach David Bliss. While sitting there, Bliss is telling Kidd the story that he wanted him to tell the committee, that Pat was a drug dealer, and that's where he got all of his money. But he does it subtly. He told Kidd, I know what happened. He told him the story and asked Kidd to confirm it. He didn't really say anything. And then Bliss added, you'd have to say that, and you would save us all a lot of trouble. If we can prove Dottie, meaning Carlton, because that was what the nickname they called him. If we can prove Dottie and Pat sold drugs, we'll all be out of the woods. I promise you, and this is a promise that he's making to Kid, the AD, athletic director, and the committee are both on our sides. Now, this is a problem because he's making this kid, first of all, have to say this story and he's making him scared because he's like okay well if everyone's gonna say this and the committee wants me to say this and the athletic director wants me to say this my whole future would be over if i went against this so like this is um where bliss is gonna kind of leave the room for a minute and this is where abar rouse is gonna try to step in and he tells kid you know and he tries to like do it in a joking way because like that's you know, he's trying to like relax kid a little bit here. And he's going to say, I think coach is leaving out that you're going to be under oath. So if you lie, you're going to jail. And and he's like, and you think bliss is going to be sitting next to you in there? And they both like laugh because like, I mean, kid knows that's true. Right. They can both perjure themselves. But who's going to be going to jail? Kid, not bliss. <laughs> It's just the way the, unfortunately, the way the world works. Right. Which is wrong. And Kid, though, doesn't seem to mind this whole thing because he says, like, his mind's already made up. Harvey's down, so I have to do it. That's what he says. Harvey Thomas is going to say this, so I have to, too. That's pretty crazy. And it's so sad. Because this, Bliss is literally having all these guys lie under oath. Yeah. and, And say a lot of shit that's not true. So the third day of recording, Bliss is going to sit down with Gwyn and Kid to practice their stories together. 
He ironically pulled out a tape recorder and asked the boys to tape themselves telling the story of Pat selling drugs and to memorize it so they always have the same story to tell. Now, only Gwyn is going to have to testify and perjure himself in front of the committee because after him, David Bliss was asked to testify. The first question he was asked was for a copy of his financial records. And David Bliss knew right then and there that he had been caught because he knew his financial records would show that he was paying the players. So he resigned during a press conference later that day. Abar Rouse is going to share the tapes with the media and the NCAA because he felt like, should a man like David Bliss be coaching these great men? No. But you know what? Com- <laughs> people like him will coach. People like Abar will not coach anymore. Right. Well, That's the difference. Now, Abar was very friendly with one member of the media who's also going to be in this documentary. And he recalls that Abar said, you know, after he gave him the tapes, he knew, he's like, That's the end of my career. He knew, but he did the right thing. Right. But that's what I'm saying. People like that should be given should the opportunity. Should be given the opportunity to do it. But, in, you know, just not the way the world works sometimes. Now, that brings us back to Carlton Dotson. He will be tried in McLennan County because the murder occurred within Waco. Waco lied within that county. He was appointed two defense attorneys who asked for their client to be evaluated for mental competency. Carlton was examined by three separate doctors, all of whom decided that he was not competent to stand trial. In their evaluation, it stated that he showed evidence of psychosis and severe impairment and was prone to fits of inappropriate laughter. He was to be admitted into a facility by the Texas Department of State Health for 120 days. And after that period, it was deemed by a doctor that he was competent to stand trial. But that's, out, that's even an outrageous claim to make, because how could he at one point be not competent, and now all of a sudden he's competent? He's competent now because you've given him drugs for his psychosis. What are they called? Psychotropes, I think? Yeah, like... Like, he's been given medication to stabilize him. Well, to take his symptoms away. To, yeah, to take his symptoms away. But is that still... You're not in the right... You're, you're still, still not, not in the right state of mind. Because right. even with medication, I mean, you're not... I don't know. It's very hard. I mean, can you sit at? Can you sit and defend yourself? You know, in front of a judge and jury. You Could can you? make the argument that under drugs, under like the effects of those drugs, that you couldn't. Yeah, I mean, he is under the influence of some sort of drug, mind-altering drug, mind-altering drug. So, can he stay, sit there, and you know, stand trial? Stand trial. I don't. I just don't think so. In personal opinion, I don't think so. Right. Just because it doesn't look like there's outwardly something wrong doesn't mean that there's there's not something wrong. And I think that if three doctors are going to say that he was suffering from psychosis, I mean, that just goes to show that maybe he's not mentally sound. And maybe that instead of being sentenced to any type of jail time would be wrong. If he did murder Patrick Dennehy, then he should be put in a mental health facility, not in a jail where he's not going to get the mental health treatment that he needs. 
I agree. Well, Carlton's lawyers are going to approach the DA and the judge and offer that Carlton pleads guilty and waives his right of appeal. This would mean that the judge would sentence him. The family claimed that this deal was misrepresented to them because they were told really that Carlton was going to get more like five years if he pled guilty. So that's why the family told Carlton to sign the papers. It's not necessarily a lie because if he if Carlton was going to plead guilty and the judge was going to be allowed to sentence him, um, the judge was allowed to sentence anywhere between one and 99 years for this crime. So is there a possibility of five years? Yeah, but I don't think that that was ever going to be what the outcome was. So I think that they were misled in what would happen if he did plead guilty. And I also want to add that he was told to check off the box, waive your right of appeal, which I mean, I think is wrong of any defense lawyer to ever make their client sign. Yeah, I don't know why you would. Right? Well, because that's going to that's going to it makes the deal look better for the prosecution because they know they're not going to have to deal with appeals. It's also good for a judge because a judge can make any decision he wants. And he doesn't have to worry about his decision being overturned and looking bad because this guy's waived his right of appeal. So yeah. judges are they're prone to accepting deals where the defendant is waiving their right of appeal. Yeah, which you should never do ever. So I also think this is a big mistake because and the defense lawyers had access to all of this. So I'm going to go through like a series of like information that was found out by the prosecution that the defense lawyers had access to. And based off of this information, they should have went to trial because based on the autopsy, it reveals a completely different story that the confession that Carlton made could not have ever happened. Patrick Dennehy was shot through the back of the head with the bullet entering from the back of his skull and exiting through the front in his forehead. Then there was a second shot that entered through one ear and went out the other. So obviously the victim fell to the ground from the first shot to the head and then he was shot through the ear. So like, Someone shot down at him while he was laying down on the ground. Now, that's something that, and this is just my opinion here. So I'm just throwing it out there. If Carlton Dotson killed Patrick Dennehy, I think it, it might have caused a psychotic break in him. Why? Because he loved his, he loved this guy. They were friends. So do I, I think that's a cold blooded move. To shoot someone in the head and then shoot them again while they're laying on the ground already dead. That's a cold, calculated move. Do I think someone would have done that who was so distraught, even if he did kill him? He was so distraught. He would shoot him twice? I don't think that was the move of Carlton Dotson. It's like, that's just like how I feel. Like, that's a, that's a weird, And it has nothing to do with, like, the confession that was made. So here you now have a, what is this? An uncorroborated personal confession, which 
under Texas state law, you cannot convict someone on. The DA's got his body, but the body's not corroborating the confession. It's telling a whole different story. Right. So that alone would cancel the conviction. That would be so easy to explain to a jury. Why did they take that to trial? You know what? You bring up a valid point. Oh, there's more. And that's what's frustrating. We can't forget the tapes from Abar Rouse where David Bliss is admitting that he lied to Harvey Thomas when the university told the police and the media that there had never been a conflict and there had never been a gun. That was a lie. The victim and Carlton Dotson were both in fear of their lives. And we know that because Patrick Dennehy called his family, he called his girlfriend, and he called his friend to say this. Never did he ever mention anything negative about Carlton Dotson. He did mention that maybe it was Carlton who was being threatened a little bit more than he was, and that he was scared. They were both scared. So it it all just gets super crazy. Then there was also documentation that was found that David Bliss... David Bliss, who denied ever talking to Harvey Thomas about this, had a conversation because it was documented that he asked Harvey Thomas about the money dispute and he asked him about, and it says, Larry's gun. And that was on June 9th. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is we've gotten so far, right, with this. And there's so many things that don't make sense still. Right. Right? So... You know, the one thing that I think is weird is that Dot, Dottie didn't, he made it, he claimed that that Pat pointed a gun at him and tried to fire it at him, but it didn't go off because it jammed. Right. So, either two things with that, either that's a lie, or that's what he was told to say, or that actually happened. If it actually happened, why? Why would Pat do that, Right. If he wasn't afraid, now it was his friend. Right. So was it something where, like, both of them were, like, told, listen, you need to kill, you know, like, like they, they need somebody, to kill the other one. Right. Somebody had a separate conversation with both of them saying, you need to take this person out. Right. And that's what they and were that's, scared and of. Then that's, and then you be, you know, and then you're taking the fall, like, and then someone's going to be taking a fall for this because they're hiding, they're trying to help, they're trying to, like, not get... Um, Thomas in trouble here and his cousin. So could it be that that's where maybe Larry and Thomas is where they were getting the money from, uh, that where um, uh, Coach Bliss was getting the money from? Maybe that they were selling, you know, like I'm just trying to say, maybe they were selling drugs. Well, they came in only a few days. Like, I don't think they were there long enough for Coach Bliss bliss or any of the coaching staff to get involved with them i think whatever was happening between harvey thomas and larry johnson and carlton dotson and patrick dennehy had nothing to do with the coaching staff but the coaching staff tried to cover it up after the fact so i don't think the coaches are involved but i do think there's a strong possibility that if either of these boys who seemed to really like each other, they were both terrified. They were influenced in some way by a third party. That's what I'm saying. 
and there needed to be a reason, whether it be money, drugs, whatever. They mentioned the drug, um, the money being misplaced or something. Mm-hmm. All I know is that I think if if that statement is correct from Dottie that said that Pat looked at him and pulled the gu- uh, pulled the gun on him and tried to fire. If that's the case, then that means that like. They were both. They were both told to do the same thing, like on each other. Well, I this is, and this is just my opinion. I think the story that Carlton Dotson said was untrue. I think that's what he wished happened. I think that both of them, both men, were told you need to kill the other one, and Patrick Dennehy refused to do it because what did he say to his friend? I've got his back. Right. But unfortunately, Carlton Dotson was suffering from mental illness. He wasn't able to deal with the pressure. Maybe he had a psychotic break. And he, unfortunately, in a moment of weakness, is going to be the one to take the shot at his friend. Right. And then to try to mentally And he did it while he wasn't looking. Right. And to mentally prepare himself for that, he says, you know... You know, Please, Father, help you know, me. You know, forgive me for what yeah. I'm about to do, and he pulls the trigger. And then that's why he has this psychotic break and this obsession about not going to heaven. Right. I'm just saying, though, that that's the one piece of evidence, guys, that is never really brought up again. Um, is during that te- uh, during Dottie's testimony, him him saying that. Well, his confession. I'm sorry, his confession that he that. He pulled uh, that his friend pulled the gun on him first. Well, I think he wished that Patrick Dennehy right. did that because he probably felt guilty. Like, like Pat wasn't going to kill me, but I was weak and I gave in. Right. So that that so means I think that he somebody that else. Happen. Right. There is definitely somebody else involved here that made him ultimately do that. Yeah. But oh. the conversation was probably said to both of them. Right. So there was, there's way more things here that we don't know about. Oh, totally. But what happened was the judge accepted the offer from the defense. So now Carlton Dotson would never get a trial. And the judge residing over the case is going to make an announcement that he was going to accept the plea and that he wanted pre-sentence evaluation to be completed within a week that that was when he wanted to make his decision. Now, this is a big deal. So when this happens and the judge is making his sentence, whether there was a court case heard or not, there's a pre-sentence evaluation that is done by law clerks that's going to look into similar cases, look at sentences that were doled out, um, look at extenuating um, factors involved in the case, like the life of Dotson, his psychological evaluation. There's so much that goes into... A pre-sentence evaluation. So much. And even the DA during the documentary is going to admit that that was so weird. He said, and I quote, this is from the DA. And this is the DA that actually wanted Dotson to like go to jail for the rest of his life for this. So this is a guy who was against Dotson is even going to admit it was really fast, really fast. It usually takes six weeks for a pre-sentence evaluation on a shoplifter. So one week for a murder trial? That's what the DA said. Well, they have a point. Six weeks for a shoplifter? One week for a murder? 
Right. What the hell is this judge doing? And you have these laws where you need to prove, you have to have corroborating evidence, right, to convict. Right. And there was 120 days where this defendant wasn't even mentally competent to stand trial. Now you got one week? So this is just like a hot mess. So in the end, Carlton Dotson was sentenced to 35 years. And, I mean, yes, it's a lot less time. Like, the prosecution was really seeking a 60-year sentence minimum because that in Texas is considered a life sentence, 60 years. So 35 years is less, but that's his whole life. Um, so I, like we said, I think that if he would have went to trial, there was just so much reasonable doubt and there were so many other questions that weren't answered. Um, his confession was not corroborated. There was so much that those two defense attorneys could have done. It's just like, it's sad. It's very sad that I feel like Carlton Dotson was not able to have more of a voice in his defense. And I mean, at the end of the day, he wasn't even mentally competent to stand trial. And that's what I believe that he might have needed to go somewhere, go away, not be released back into society, but it should have been to a mental health facility. Um, Yeah, I agree. But, you know, we also have to remember, though, that I mean, I think that, you know, Pat, you know, Dennehy is the main victim here. Yeah. We don't know all the details that what led to his murder and, you know, his disappearance and his murder. Right. Um, and, he, you know, he's the real victim here. As far as as far as Dottie's concerned, I think that there were many, many wrongdoings during his case, during his trial. But we still don't know. But we don't know all the details. Right. We do know that he pulled the trigger. Right. We do but know we that he... But we don't know anything else. And it, the fact that he has, me, you know, he's dealing with mental illness makes this a lot, you know, more complicated than, than a normal case would. So it's like, I, I do look at him as uh, a secondary a victim. A secondary victim based on the circumstances, right? But not the main victim. The main victim is Patrick Dennehy. Right. And, I mean, this, this man was going to be something great, even if he wasn't an NBA star. He was going to be a great man. And that was something that was really evident by his character and the way he treated people and how those around him loved him, loved him so much. And the fact that his life was taken away, despite the fact that he reached out for help so many times, is just so tragic. Yeah. And then as far as, you know, I think the biggest thing here, too, is accountability, right? You have Baylor who really dropped the ball here. You know, they really didn't do what they needed to do. And the coach as well. So, Well, there was a lot of failures of Patrick Dennehy, and that's what's really sad. Um, Well, Carlton's family does not think he committed the crime. They think that um, his time would have been better served in a mental health facility. And Pat's family also thinks that Carlton, although he may have been guilty of pulling the trigger, that they don't believe that he acted alone or on his own wishes. Like maybe he committed this crime at the demands of somebody else, either Thomas or Thomas's cousin. Oh, yeah. And um, 
It's actually really interesting because when you watch the documentary, Harvey Thomas does participate in the documentary and um, just interesting and kind of a little chilling to hear him talking. But he says he still denies to this day any type of involvement. He denies the money dispute. He denies um, the guns. He denies all of it. And he does say, too, though, that he also, just like the other men involved in this whole entire thing, he wasn't there for that long. I mean, that's what he's saying. Right. And we do have to think of this because I I do. I want to cover all the bases here. How reliable is Carlton Dotson only because, remember, he accused Abar Rouse of running a drug ring. The only thing that makes the Harvey Thompson angle stick is that Patrick Dennehy said it to to all of his loved ones. So that's the only reason why I think that that is not a lie. I think there was a dispute over money. I think a gun was pulled. And um, do I know how much of an involvement that had with Patrick Dennehy's murder? I think something. Because there was, what else was happening? Why else did those two boys buy guns to protect themselves? Did something go wrong with those guns? A hundred percent. Could it have just been a complete accident? Could they have been firing and... But then why know. was there the yeah. second shot? Yeah. That it's, was malice. It yeah, was. It's it's hard to explain. Um and you know, it's just, it's it's complicated for both families. But there has been another theory that has come out. And this is going to come out after the sentencing of Carlton Dotson. So there was a worker from the Greyhound bus station in Waco, Texas, who was going to call the police. He says that on a Greyhound bus, he found a manila envelope of Baylor players. And it wasn't just them playing basketball. Some of them were smoking. Some of them were partying. Um, Compromising positions, one would say. And it was proven that Larry Johnson sat on that Greyhound bus. So did Larry Johnson and Harvey Thomas realize, oh, my God, these guys, they've got a lot of money. There's some stuff going on at this school. Let's extort them. If I show this picture of you partying, you're going to lose your scholarship, which these kids didn't even realize they didn't have. Right? Yeah, blackmail is definitely so could a motive. This, is that what they were scared of? Blackmail. But can I tell you? Mm-hmm. It would have to be worse than that. Um, listen, you don't. When you're 20 years old and you think your NBA career is going to ride on something like this, that's fear, right? You don't have that way of thinking. There's no rational, like, Oh, no, they're just bluffing. I mean, this is a guy with a gun. I know, but I'm just trying to say there's other, you know, there's other players that have done way worse and they still come out the other side totally unscathed. Right. But if you're being blackmailed, I don't think you're thinking that way. I don't think you're thinking, oh, someone else did something worse than me and they got through it. You're thinking this is going to be a career ender for me. So it was definitely something to be scared of. Or, at the very least, it's showing that Larry Johnson had ill intent for Baylor basketball players. Something. If he had photos of them, it had to be, there had to be a reason. Right. And um, 
it also is going to come out in the documentary that David Bliss is just more of a jerk than you thought he was because he completely doubles down. And he, thinking he, in a very um, jinx moment, thinking he was off camera, like off the record, he's going to say, oh, yeah, but like, then he did deal drugs. He sold drugs to all the white kids. That's what he said on camera. Right, exactly. So this friggin' asshole is still doubling down on this, saying that he was a drug dealer. It's like, this, this man died. He was murdered. You have zero empathy, but you're claiming to be this massive Christian who went on to write a book about how his faith got him through this and um, he owes everything to God and Jesus. Look what you're doing. Look what you're saying. And there's he has no repercussions, so... Zero. Zero. He goes on to work for another um, Christian university in Texas. However, um, after this documentary is going to come out and what he said off camera, he's going to be let go from that university. Well, he resigns quietly. And now I believe he is coaching high school basketball at a Christian school in Texas. (laughs) He'll always be coaching because this guy's never getting in trouble. Yeah, I... I we really recommend you going to watch that documentary from Showtime. It's called Disgraced, and I promise, promise, promise that you will not um, be disappointed by it because seeing these people give their interviews, it's gut wrenching, and it's just so well done and put together. It really, truly is. And Carlton Dotson is actually eligible for parole in twenty twenty one. So we will keep you updated on whether or not he does get parole. Um, he did waive his rights of appeal, so none of that information was ever to be appealed. But we'll update you on whether or not he gets that appeal. And, you know, this is such a tragic tale. These boys with big dreams of playing professional sports, they became objects for these wealthy universities. And no case makes that more clear than this one. And, you know, Bliss trying to besmirch the memory of Patrick Dennehy, who was a great man, you know. Yeah, he had a whole life to live. It's so sad. And our hearts do go out to Pat's family. And what happened to them is just nothing short of heartbreaking, I feel. I agree. All right, guys. Um, So before we go, we just want to thank all of our Patreons. So we want to thank the following Patreons. Edlin... Kirsten Forte, Guamissi is going to up the pledge from $5 to 10 Thank you so much. Esmeralda Barbe, Britt Yassin, Ben Strider, Lanessa Kwai Kendall, Krista Meyer, Jay DeBasse, Jay DeBoose. I don't know. I'm sorry, Jay. I think I said it wrong. Please correct me, and then I'll say it again. <laughs> Allie Frederick, Aaron Altenberg, Melissa Foreman, Samantha Wright, Stephanie Newman. Thanks, guys, so much, and we cannot wait to bring you more Patreon episodes, and thank you so much for your donations. Thank you, guys. All right, everyone. Have a great two weeks. I guess we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> see you. <ya. laughs> Bye, guys. Bye.